Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with the Socialist Project, which is an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. My name is Sadia. I'm Corbin. And I'm Charmaine. Today, we're going to have a discussion based on the following question. How do we work to build socialism? We're going to try to approach the question from a practical standpoint rather than from a theoretical one. Answering the question from a broad theoretical standpoint would be easy enough. We could just say, if we want to build socialism, we should bring the means of production under the collective ownership of the working class, or something of that sort. But what we want to do is to consider what socialist activists can do to intervene in the political context in which they find themselves. Since the context we are in is Toronto and Canada, that's the context we'll be referencing most often, though we'll compare and contrast it with other contexts as well. I think one way we can approach this is looking at what's happening in the U.S., where we see a huge rise of people talking about socialism. Socialism is now part of their electoral strategy for some of the Democrats and some independents. And I think people are wondering why that kind of cultural and political resurgence isn't happening in Canada. Yeah, and much as I'm loath to say this, I think a lot of it is a result of a single person's leadership in a sense, which is Bernie Sanders, and his normalizing of the word socialist and socialism in his leadership uh, cam- or his nomination bid for the Democratic Party nomination in 2016. Uh, but I would say if you look at the sort of incoming uh, cohort in Congress, which includes not only Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, but also Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilhan Omar, um, and particularly Rashida Tlaib, who has a long history of grassroots activism in uh, Wayne County, Michigan, and is very much a part of the movement. That's one part of it. But the other part in the U.S., I think, is the labor movement was so badly hit, so badly hurt, and, and really much more marginal than in Canada. And they don't have a, a labor party or a social democratic party as we do in Canada or in Europe. And so, in a sense they're in a more desperate position, which freed up, created opportunities. And so the focus for a lot of people became grassroots organizing. And because of the relatively greater inequalities in the U.S., there are a lot of opportunities there. There's also a fairly rich tradition of community organizing going back um, really a century or, or more. And so I think they had those resources to draw on. And even 10, 15, or 20 years ago, you could say, well, there's lots of interesting things happening in the U.S., that aren't really happening in Canada. Because what's happened in Canada is we've still got uh, the NDP, which is nominally or historically a social democratic party that represented some vision of socialism, and a relatively strong, although really um, rapidly weakening labor movement. And then there's a the question of Quebec, which I think you can't really ignore in this because of the, the, the dynamics with national politics and the need to sort of buy off consent or if you want if you want the Canadian state to buy off Quebec through social democratic policies i think those are some of the complicated dynamics but we still have the reality as socialists if if whoever wants to start a so build a socialist organization comes up against the ndp um at some point and i think that really is is one of the things we have to contend with 
Yeah, I think that that put a lot of different things on the table for us to pick out. So I think the first thing that you said was uh, about Bernie Sanders primarily as being a galvanizing force, which then begs the question, that in order to have this sort of resurgence of socialism, rather than it be from the bottom up, do it, does it need to be from the top down? Like we need some like f- like really inspiring, mesmerizing figures that is just going to then create all these you know, domino effects of the, DS, the democratic socialists and of like the labor movement. Uh, in another interview, when we talked to Eric Blank, there, there seemed to be some of the relationship that he was bringing out that, that a key part of how the teachers' unions got mobilized in Oklahoma and West Virginia and Arizona was because of some DSA activists who themselves were really inspired by Bernie Sanders to then get into organizing. And so then it started this whole other thing. And I think the the other question about the NDP then, which I think you're right, that where there are leftists, uh, rather than there being a place for them to cohere, to build something, um, there's they often get pulled into the NDP or to the unions, uh, which then want them to support the NDP. So the uh, organized labor and the NDP seems to be like self-reinforcing. And so in in that context, there isn't really a place for socialists as such because uh, people are like, oh, well, there's a much less radical, much more promising in terms of career-wise, materially alternative. So why wouldn't you go that way? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I don't really know. Like, is the mantra of going to organize the working class still legitimate in Canada? Is that still where we go back to? Even if in the states, like some of that was happening, but it took some key drivers to catalyze that into something historically different. I think that socialists in well, in, in the scene I'm in, in Toronto, do struggle with um, understanding what is working class. And I was um, struck when you know, I was reading this book by Kim Moody, who really identifies like particular segments of the working class, like for example, in distribution centers and Amazon um, that are not yet unionized, uh, pointing out like, you know, key places where capital is dependent on that we need to start organizing. And I realized reading that book that I have very little awareness about, you know, the political economy of Canada and where those like, com- like where those fissures in working class um, areas would be, um, whether they're in the service sector or where, like where do we put our attention to maybe um, to start, I guess. Um, but I think there is a lack of understanding of like who or what is the working class, where do we start? Um, and secondly, it's it's really frustrating for me to sort of see a dominance of um, kind of a more leftist electoral politics because I do find electoral politics under capitalism like kind of dead end. I, you know, for sure, like I will support NDP as like a harm reduction measure. But what I'll, what I kind of predict if some of these people do get in, like, you know, if Bernie Sanders does get in, um, that it will be a big disappointment for socialists in America. Like it, it'll be kind of like an enemy we kind of like a little, um, or an enemy we hate a little less in that case. And so for me, I'm trying to figure out in my work, um, and my organizing about how to build confidence in people around organizing. And I think activists and socialist activists are struggling with, you know, do we concentrate on building socialist organizations that can present a clear socialist alternative? Or um, do we want to do community organizing, movement building, things like that? I've For the 20 years I've identified as socialist, I've gone back and forth between those two things. 
And um, for me, my priorities have always been, you know, I want to um, build confidence in people to organize and to articulate socialist politics. And that's not really through electoral politics. For me, that's around, um, you know, hard skills of organizing, um, around disruption, and also around education. And so um, I'm kind of nervous if, you know, we kind of then try and figure out a leader, like, should we prop up Jagmeet Singh as the new, as, as the new socialist head? I would be really, really disgusted if I that were... I don't think he wants to. I know, he doesn't want to either. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I think that's um, where, I'm at, where I am at. And, but right now, I feel like we have to contend with this sudden interest in electoral politics as um, a strategy in socialist politics. I, I think you identified something important around Bernie, which is that even if he's in office, even if he's elected... The left, generally, the, the balance of social forces isn't such that, he, uh, let alone, uh, never mind the balance of social forces, even the legislative power, he won't necessarily have to accomplish anything. And the bureaucracy and all of that would be against him, the security state. And so really, his ability to do anything would be limited. And I don't know if that's part of the messaging right now. Like, I don't know if that's part of, and this is something that I have started to say as a little formula of mine, which is that there can't be left politics without left pedagogy, right? That's something we see over and over again, which is that the left fundamentally doesn't trust the people. And you can see that now, if you want to call the NDP the left, but you can see it in BC, where people who historically have been close to figures who are now in government, uh, out of certain movements and so on, are now hearing, well, you don't understand what we're dealing with. You don't understand what we're up against. Well, why don't you just tell us what you're dealing with? Or what That would be useful. That would be pedagogical. And so there's no effort to include the public in this. And inevitably, that's extremely demoralizing. I think that is the risk with Sanders. And that's the risk with premature electoralism. Um, when you don't have that, and when you don't have, frankly, a cadre who can sort of stay true to a political purpose and, you know, maybe have some sort of an internal strategy versus an external strategy. But then you're confronted with the fact that most people engage politics, mass politics, really only mass politics through electoralism. And that's when they get turned on to politics. And you, it's an opportunity to raise issues. And so by not engaging in that the left is also sort of out of the picture, right? Keeps itself out of the picture. And I th I think the Amazon workers, uh, that's really interesting because I, I think it points to the incredible reorganization of our economy, which is happening really quickly right now. Um, it started under neoliberalism, but also the tech, you know, under the, with the development of the tech sector as, as it is and, and the speed at which it's developing. I think if you are a socialist or a Marxist, you have to say, well, what does that mean for the form of organization? Does the form of organization stay the same? You can't go to the shop floor. You can't get really access in Amazon to do this. And so how do we access people? How do, how do we access working class or, or ordinary working people, however you want to say it, in order to start doing this organizing to build some kind of political organization that at some point would be ready to engage the state? I think that's the question. I mean, I think both of you guys were you're getting at also is like, how does the left conceptualize power? And does the left actually even want to be in power? And do we as a left have a vision for what we would do when we get there? I think a lot of what passes for the left, both in academia and in activism, is just critiques of 
like things that are wrong and uh, sometimes in like very micro ways uh, and sometimes in macro ways but we are we don't have the courage to put anything forward as an alternative and not only do we don't have the courage to put anything forward um, we especially don't have the courage to put forward in the sort of high stakes way that an election would give us and we absolutely can't afford to not engage in elections and I think for the longest time and I, I me included I think I was convinced more or less that we you know as a leftist um, I don't want to engage in elections like seems like a waste of time seems like a waste of energy and uh, I think that's a problem in a number of ways for one thing I think what Corvin you were saying about like the elections are a time of concentrated politicization or like political energy um and and that's unfortunate of course like it 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 is a function of a very anti-democratic political system for for to concentrate political energies in that sort of highly mechanized um you know periodic kind of alienating way um but that is how it is and if we if we resign ourselves to not be part of that and to not put our ideas forward I think we've seen what the outcome is, that if uh, if an electorate, even if it's not really engaged, even if 60% of people are only voting, or 50%, even those um, we've seen all over the world are looking for alternatives to the establishment. And if the left has either intentionally or unintentionally just sat away and not put like radical alternatives to the status quo, the right is not hesitant in that way. The right is very much like on top of doing that. And I think that's a big part of why we've had this resurgence of the um, of the radical right. And so I think it's not just in terms of like what kind of dangers we're doing to ourselves. Um, and we actually, I think, keep ourselves really stunted as a left. But also that if we don't do it, people suffer and uh, people We've seen suffer a lot more when the when the radical right gets into power. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I hope I didn't seem too dismissive of um, electoral politics. I'm just saying it can't be the only thing, and I agree. Um, I think I think our strategy has to be kind of multi pronged because right now um, there is a resurgence of the right in Canada, and I agree. Like I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to try and stop a conservative government gain to power because it will. It will mean a lot of, I mean, just even provincially, how much hardship we've had. And those hardships materially push the left back. It means that our gains, we have to refight to get them. And then also just culturally, you know, if there is a social democratic, you know, government, you know, uh, gaining power, um, that means we're able to push leftist politics more. So I'm I'm not one of those, um, this kind of these... um, some socialists are like, oh, well, if the right wing gets in, it'll mobilize this like uprising. I've never really experienced that or seen that happen. Worked well in Germany in the 30s. Okay. <laughs> Got to bring up the 30s in Germany. Um, but, I, but I do find that, um, you know, as like um, national or mainstream politics moves more to the left, then that opens more opportunities for socialists to put forward their ideas as reasonable. Um, yeah, so for sure, I think... Yeah, we need to be involved in the election. I think different activist movements, anti-capitalist movements need to push that. I'm just more wary of putting all our eggs in that process and only doing that, you know, every four years. And I do find, honestly, that outside of election year, there is a resurgence of organizers. You know, it's like kind of months coming up, then I see people coming back into the fold and doing that work again. 
So I guess I'm just trying to figure out that multi-pronged approach because I just think if we just put all our energy into elections, which is what a lot of socialists do, I find, they just like kind of try and get the NDP candidate elected and then that's it. I think that's I think that's uh, too short-sighted. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Doug Ford and what's happening in Ontario right now because if anything shows the weakness of the left at an organizational level, it's Doug Ford. This is a person who's already hugely unpopular. The politics of this government are hugely unpopular, even among the people who voted for them. Mind you, they didn't really campaign on a platform of any kind, but they did promise they weren't going to cut anything. And they are cutting things, and their budget is also fiscally irresponsible. And so I think in this context, and we're, and yet we're seeing it's not really benefiting the NDP. Also, the NDP isn't putting out an ambitious program, right? Because the calculus of their electoral strategy would be, if this person's imploding, we just need to be seem credible, right? We don't need to be that ambitious. I don't know what conversations are happening there. I know there are good activists inside the party at Queen's Park now, but that's just the pattern of how the NDP has made those decisions, and that's certainly how their staffers would think. So um, I think that's a statement about the weakness of the left. But the challenge that I think both of you have identified, which is how do you how do you create a, a left organization or, or engage in politics at the electoral level yet still be accountable is one I think that, you know, starting in the 70s, so many left parties have tried to grapple with, uh, beginning with the German Greens and and many other in Quebec Solidaire in, in Quebec. But it's a difficult one. I don't know what the challenge would be because you can even see with Quebec Solidaire, I'm sure their activists would disagree with me, but the pull of electoralism and just the logic of it is you focus on mitigating your risks in the electoral sphere, especially when you have elected representatives, and then you're no longer a party of the streets. And so how does that really work? I think that's a major challenge for any any left organization. And it's almost like you would want two parties. You would want to have the electoral party and then you would want to have the street party that could kick the ass of the electoral party if it needed to, but not the same organization with the same budget, because inevitably that gets subordinated to the needs and the expertise of the people in the electoral organization. Yeah, I think you know, we could have prevented something like Doug Ford's administration from happening, even something like Trump's administration from happening, to go and like talk to people and what I've heard often from um, leftists is that, you know, why should I go talk to those poor white people who are being racist? Like, that's not my job. You know, I, they should just go fix their racism themselves or other white people should go do it. And I mean, that just raised the question for me. Like, so what's the point of us being leftists if we don't want to go talk to people who are not going to agree with us? And I think the right has a much easier, much easier time dealing with it. We can see this, especially with Doug Ford and the, the conservatives here because they have no problem going to you know muslim communities they have no problem going to like chinese communities they have like you know small town white communities everywhere they'll go and talk to them and be like okay well you know are you against the sex ed curriculum yes come on board are you against uh, you know having more taxes taken from you great come on board and let's go win this election um and as leftists we just haven't been able to do that right i feel like Either we've like lost the capacity collectively as a left to do that, um, or it's just that 
so much of it ends up being like a self-righteous kind of left um, that's not actually interested in talking to ordinary people as they actually exist. We'd rather just talk about the imaginary oppressed person in the abstract. Um, when people say, who are those idiots? Or I don't want to talk to people because of they might be racist. For me, that's that's a lack of skills. And I think, um, I think you know, being able to train people and also... Um, it's a it's a it's not an easy thing to just wake up and be like I'm going to be an organizer and do it, and so for me thinking about building hegemony is about how do we want to build those skills and so um, like I even remember and like the NDP with the provincial election totally screwed it up because they were you know pretty high in the polls and that surprised them they put the, all the resources on a media campaign they had no on the ground volunteers and that's a perpetual problem with the NDP is that people don't want to do the door to door knocking. And, um, and except actually, to identify the vote, yeah, except that's that. it, yeah. And they actually say, I mean, the one time I've done door to knocking, they said if someone's voting conservative, just move on, don't try and convince them. I'm like, why not? Right. You know, um, but it's it's really based around um, a lack of capacity. But I also don't think we have that culture of skill sharing. And how I came into radical politics, it was that culture. It was during um, like fighting the WTO and IMF. People were talking about economics, but we had like weekly trainings of like direct action uh, training um how to like how to stop um how to disrupt the government like my politics was like we don't wait till the election we can like disrupt the government and, de- and make demands to happen so i'm really annoyed when a lot of people um even a lot of social say like well we got to like fight forward in the next well a lot of unions are saying that we got to fight forward in the next election i believe we can fight them now i think if we mobilized and you know really disrupted everyday life um like with different forms of direct action building towards a general strike we have some tangible demands that could happen and that could really alleviate so much pain that's going to be happening in ontario in the next few months with these cuts but for me, yeah, it's a lack. I don't know. It's it is really like a, a lack of political will from people who have the resources to do that. But I'm okay with that. If the unions don't want to do it, I think that you know our small band of people who really believe in these politics, we can do it. Um, but it has to be a commitment to like um, sharing our skills. You know, like that kind of um, everyone. You know, if you don't know, um, you learn. If you do know, you teach. You know, and I think that's a really important value that socialists need to do, not only in the academy but like on the ground. And um, I do think that we have capacity to do it because I've seen it. Like, I feel like in the 90s, we actually had more um, power, hegemonic power to make change. So I think um, I think we can build it back. Yeah, and I guess uh, we have been talking a little abstract. So to take Charmaine's lead and think a little bit more practically, uh, I, I agree with Charmaine. And I think that the left has been reticent for whatever reasons, right? I think... And again, I'll put the the left in in quotation marks. But let's talk about the socialist or, or even the Marxist left. That's a little bit clearer. I think it's largely been situated in the academy in in recent years, and and so I agree with Charmaine that despite all of the social reorganization that's taken place under neoliberalism, and I don't know what era of capitalism we're in now. Like, is this post neoliberalist neoliberal hellscape? I mean, <laughs> what is this? But Despite that, a lot of the organizing really is not rocket science. It's just very basic going and talking to people. And I would start at what maybe the left would traditionally think of as the periphery, which is a sort of suburban areas where there might be heavy forward voting. Most of those people are working class. And 
and talk to them about the basic issues. And because like in Toronto, the basic issues are housing and transit and will be healthcare, right? Uh, and, and things like that. It should be it should be relatively easy to have a conversation with people and articulate an alternative vision just in terms of organizing like as socialists, because I don't think we can count on the unions or the NDP ever to do this. If there were an electoral push, because that's sometimes just um, somewhere to hang your hat, like in a sense of we're going to run candidates not to win because we want to push ideas. I think there are enough people even outside of existing socialist organizations. In fact, my point of view is you want to get people mostly outside of socialist organizations because people in socialist organizations turn people off. <laughs> that's that's my, my opinion. And But I think there are enough people out there who would be willing to actually work and go knocking on doors and have these conversations. But like Charmaine said, it's a skill. And it's a skill you don't learn in the academy, how to talk to people about politics. So I think that is a priority, actually, to learn how to do that, the communication skill. You know, to connect to, Shamin, your point about trainings, I, I think you're right. And, and that connects to pedagogy and like capacity building. Um, my experience on the left has been that we often will have, will do the trainings well, but there's nothing to plug into. And so like we, and I, and I guess like, you know, of course, partly it can be a chicken and egg scenario. Like, do we have keep people with the capacities and then to do the organizing and then to start an organization or do we have an organization then through that build the capacities and then do stuff. But I think like it really has to be more um, sort of synthesized in the socialist project. For example, we're trying to do the trainings, the capacity building, but not as a, uh, prerequisite to the organizing, but as part of the organizing. And so I think I, I agree with the training part, but I think um, the question for me is like, how do we make sure that that training isn't just um, a mechanism for leftists to just sort of score more credentials for themselves, which I think it often ends up being that we like go to the various left lectures, we go to various trainings, and it's just a way of padding up our own credentials as leftist credentials um, rather than for it to be put to the service of the people in, in some sort of concrete way. Um, I wish socialist organizations and um, different issue-based movements did talk to each other more um, because my my small stint in a socialist organization, we actually didn't do any organizing. It was just like a lot of, um, it was fine. It was like a lot of educationals, um, you know, and like selling them newspapers. But um, those skills of being able to like actually talk to people and actually, um, okay, like, our goal of having a socialist world is seems really far away, but if we can connect people's um, understanding of power and oppression to this issue, like transit, and I did do that work in Vancouver with the Bus Riders Union, to be able to actually show how capitalism and power work in um, a service that should be that is a human right or should be you know human right. Um, was a lot easier to translate than like, hey, read Marx, read this, read our pamphlet on, you know, Engels and Marx's debate on this. Um, but being able to explain it in like a lived thing um, was um, greatly successful. And you have tangible goals that can be met, you know, um, like in Vancouver, we won back night owls, uh, night owl buses, for example, that was a tangible goal. And I think when people, um, like there's a lot of failure with organizing, but when you have that win, it really builds confidence. Like one example known as legal is 
Um, and for sure it's reformist, but, you know, getting Toronto to be a sanctuary city was a huge win after like almost 10 years of organizing. And it really built the confidence of organizers and new organizers coming in. So that was a huge win for um, for activists in Toronto. And it, it, it fundamentally has improved lives of, of the most of one of the most marginalized people in Toronto, which is our undocumented people. Uh, the majority of which in Canada do live in Toronto. And so I think it's really important for socialist activists. And it's it's not easy. Like I've definitely have limitations, like have faced limitations with organizing. You do feel like you're just doing reformist work, you know, and I'm, and you're like, my politics aren't this. But I think we need to have tangible goals that we can win to push the envelope further. And I think what socialists need to do is articulate power relationships and capitalism with everyday living and that way, I think we can build power. Yeah. I actually think uh, not only for no one is illegal, but for most groups nowadays, I mean, most of the interesting work is reformist because that usually comes out of engagement with actually impacted communities, right? And finding out what their priorities and interests are <laughs> rather than... But I think the question is like, okay, what what would be what would it mean to be not reformist and revolutionary in, in this, this context? context? Yeah, yeah like, I mean, context. for socialists to be revolutionary, quote unquote, it's would it, like what like what does that actually mean? Like today, we, yeah, today it doesn't mean anything because there's no the social conditions for revolution don't exist. So it basically means you're not doing anything and you're not engaging. You're with, just waiting around for like some crisis to happen the, the in your life. Perfect moment, and I think today to be socialist you have to be reformist in your practice to some degree because like we've been saying to be revolutionary has almost is almost empty of meaning in this context so yeah and i just want to say i didn't want to suggest electoralism and not disruption but i think the question is then how do you do disruption to build broader solidarities with people who aren't already down with disruption right like how does it build outwards rather than just staying in a and that i think is like a, a difficult tactical or strategic question that you gotta do a lot of building around but it's been really interesting to watch the disruption in the uk with extinction rebellion where they really shut down big parts of now i don't know if that's because of who is doing the disrupting like in terms of their social identities and maybe their middle class white people i don't really know the I don't know that. But I also think it's the issue is at a point and and there's just a broad enough sense of we're not doing anything about this and this is a serious problem that there was enough social sympathy that even the media didn't go after them that hard. And so I think there's a there are yeah, there are intelligent disruptions and then there are less useful disruptions, but I think that has to be a part of it. I think, Corwin, what you were saying, um, too, and I think with uh, what you mean, what you're saying about, like, where we're doing the community organizing and the social movement work, um, I think there is a way for us to be able to conceptualize, like, parliamentary and extra-parliamentary organizations for as socialists and as leftists, where, um, where we do put forward our ideas during elections, but that both the people that we run and the ideas that are run are held accountable to a broader extra-parliamentary base that is then continuously involved through those conversations about 
like what are we what are we up against what are the challenges um how should we should we try to compromise should we not try to compromise like what are the implications of compromising like where what are we willing to settle for who are our allies who are against us and i think that sort of pedagogical and and politicization work should can absolutely happen in actual parliamentary community organizing labor organizing um context uh, which i think we need the dynamic of the two to be able to actually have power like get power but actually be able to keep it and keep ourselves accountable once we have it thanks for tuning in to oats for breakfast we'll be continuing this discussion in a segment that will be made available to our patreon supporters in the coming week you can become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast if you have any questions or feedback for us, you can write to us at podcast at socialistproject.ca. Thanks again for tuning in. And we'll see you next time.